Welcome to One Move at a Time, the U.S. chess podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area, one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. chess podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which I go more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org or by subscribing via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. It is a pleasure to introduce Dr. Martha Underwood to the One Move at a Time podcast. Dr. Underwood earned her PhD at the University of Arizona in special education. She is currently the president of the Southern Arizona Chess Association and holds the rank of FIDE Arbiter and National Tournament Director. Of special interest to this podcast, she has been a member of the Accessibility and Special Circumstances Committee since 2017. Welcome to the show, Martha. Welcome. Thank you. So let's get right to the Accessibility Committee. You have a background in this work as you were Director of Developmental Disability Services in the late 90s for the Tucson Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Tucson, Arizona. Why don't you talk a bit about what the Accessibility Committee is doing now and plans for the future? The emphasis of the committee is to create tools and and provide resources so that tournament directors and organizers and small uh, community organizations can create reasonable and fair accommodations for players with disabilities. Um, the idea is to support players with disabilities in f- uh, regu- typical events, to fully integrate players and support players in these events. And the idea of our committee is to provide these resources so that the organizers and tournament directors can do this at with, uh, with not... Uh, excessive costs. And I think that most people automatically think of wheelchairs when they think of accessibility, but there's many, many different types of issues that your committee discusses, right? Well, yes. Yeah. So that there are very visible disabilities, people who, who may have a physical impairment or may use some sort of physical accommodation like a wheelchair or, uh, or have some sort of adaptation to write their moves. But what, what our committee is also focusing on are those invisible disabilities, such as players who might have emotional behavioral disorders or cognitive challenges or behavioral um, complications that aren't easily manageable with our TD rules. And uh, who are some of the members of, of the committee that are working with you? Well, the chair of the committee is Janelle Losoff, the vice chair, Judith Starre, and Stephanie Burke is also on the subcommittee who is alongside uh, myself. We are writing the guidelines to provide these resources for the U.S. Chess Federation. Um, but there are other many prominent members, Steve Emmett, Sophia Rode, 
And the uh, this might be an interesting time to talk a little bit about our U.S. chess governance process, because what the committee is doing is writing up some guidelines for the executive board to review. Is is that correct? Correct. So right now we are there's many phases to the project of providing these guidelines. And what we've done over the last year is we've researched accessibility issues from credible sources and cited those sources and provided that information to the executive board. Um, Ryan Velez is our board liaison. It has been very helpful in this process um, to bring about accessibility awareness to our, to the executive board to get support for our projects. We've also written and, uh, are a series of accessibility guidelines that is under review right now by the TD certification and rules uh, committees. Um, To go forward, what we're trying to do is help committees and delegates understand the philosophy about supporting players in existing tournaments, and the focus is not to create segregate tournaments for people with disabilities, but to support possibly new members, into existing events that are are already taking place in the United States. Uh, One thing I'm curious about is it seems like this is an area where internet chess must be uh, just a lifesaver for uh, people with uh, accessibility issues. Well, any kind of uh, accommodation that would be needed would be absolutely welcome. And internet chess would be one way to include someone in an event. But what what I think we're really about is in events where people come together to support people in that community. So it's really about supporting people who might have visible or invisible disabilities in our community at large. One thing internet chess does is I think it can isolate a player. It is one way that could be successful, but my hope, and I think the committee's hope, is to really make seamless inclusion in existing open events in our country, whether they be scholastic or large purse events. And probably over time, you've uh, gathered some uh, accessibility stories. Why, Why don't you share a little of that? Yes, I've had the good fortune over the years to be invited to work at a number of events around the country. And I've kind of collected these stories anecdotally, um, to bolster my thinking and my philosophies and the way that I train tournament directors and the way I myself deliver tournament direction. And a recent story comes to mind that might have been more successful if some of these accessibility guidelines were in place. At a national event, uh, a young player um, wasn't able to communicate clearly to the opponent And the opponent, in turn, made two moves in a row. Well, this became a situation where after the game finished, the other player reported that they won. The young player, who couldn't communicate clearly, agreed to that win for the opponent. And yet, when the game was over, was able to communicate to a parent or a coach that that's not what happened. So it was appealed and went all the way to the chief of the tournament who upheld the original result. But it, it, it ended with a disgruntled parent, a disgruntled coach, and a player that was confused about why the player's needs weren't met. And as a 
national tournament director, I agree with the upholding of the result. The game was over. The player didn't communicate during the event. But had the directors known that there might be some communication accommodations that could have helped this player, they certainly would have accessed those during the event to make the game fair for both players, which is the primary goal of accessibility guidelines. Um, and again, I have the advantage of being a tournament director and a specialist in this field. So the combination of the two is very, very, is very, very important for people to understand that you have to have a fair game of chess. You don't want to favor one player over the other. However, there are some accommodations that might be necessary from time to time. So in this situation, I think foreknowledge of the player's um, communication situation would have helped the tournament directors. Um, I don't know what resulted in that. I don't know if there were complaints that were made, but the whole point of our committee is to be proactive so that kind of event would be avoided. A more successful event that I was directly involved in was at the National Elementary Tournament this year where I had the good fortune to be called upon by the floor chief to observe a player who had some behavioral challenges that were preventing him from successful participation in the game. And upon, upon observer, observation, as well as these, the parents of the player did provide some um, information about the player's uh, sensory uh, difficulties, we were able to put the play, uh, place the player and his opponent in a uh, row where there was less interference, and the player ended up having a very successful tournament. Why I say this was moderately successful was that we didn't see the full picture of this player's behavioral problems until the fifth round. And what we really want to do is take that information that parents or coaches or players themselves convey to us in a confidential manner so that we can come up with methods to support them round one. We don't want to rate, wait till round five. Now, the section chief was is incredibly apt and tried some different things, but had there been some observation, take like somebody assigned to observe and see what was going on, I think that the player might have been more successful and less disruption. So that was a moderately successful story. More successful story was at another national event where <clears throat> intervention took place really quickly and uh, an actual behavioral plan was implemented with a player where the player wrote the plan um, themselves and uh, indicated what positive behavior that player would exhibit as opposed to rocking the table, climbing under the table, yelling out when frustrated. And in making that contract, it was sort of a present reminder and the contract was on the result slip, on the back of the result slip at a national event. And the player maintained behavior the entire tournament and all the tournament directors all I mean it wasn't just me there was a whole a whole bunch of tournament directors involved in this support system but it didn't take a lot of time is if the, if the if the agitation was observed all a tournament director had to do was walk by and just simply tap the paper or smile at the player and the player would remember I need to respect my opponent I need to wait to make my turn I will not climb under the table. It was pretty marvelous to see. 
And why this is interesting is I am here right now at the 120th um, delegate U.S. Open and delegates meeting, and I saw this player yesterday, and the player remembers me and always calls me Mrs. Underwood. And I, I love this player, and I know the family, and <clears throat> the player um, is, I think, an expert by now, and he acknowledges that uh, there were times in the past where behavior might not have been quite appropriate, and he didn't have respectful chess player behavior, and that's not as prevalent right now. So we're, you know, it's an example of a success story that uh, we, again, that was progression of three stories, but that is one that there was intervention prior to and, and, and before round one where the player was able to complete all seven rounds very successfully. It's something you mentioned a couple of times uh, raises a question for me. It's being an NTD and being on the accessibility committee, have you identified items in the rule book that maybe are problematical as written for accessibility issues, or has that not been something that's not been discussed? Well, right now, it's not something that I can address specifically right now, but right now that is certainly something that we want to make sure that we are in line with the rules, because first and foremost, I, I, I'm very committed to a fair game of chess and following the rules of chess, as is the committee. So we don't want to do anything that would favor a player one one way or another. So um, a simple example of that is that we're trying to create a training mechanism for organizers to come up with tournament liaisons that might be able to be a move maker if a person cannot is, is unable to make moves on the board or a scribe if that's needed if the player is unable to write or may, might have dyslexia and so isn't able to record moves successfully, but doesn't want to get time removed from their um, clock. Uh, trying to think of some other specific things, but there are some that are specifically under review by the executive board and the rules and TD certification committee, so we make sure that we adhere to the rules of chess. Okay, well, fair, fair enough. You know, let's take a giant step backwards now and... Let's talk about your start in chess. Uh, I know it's tied to the Nine Queens organization that our former executive director, Gene Hoffman, is in, was involved in in, in starting. Um, and it involved your daughter, Aya, uh, when she won Best Girl Player at an event. Yes. And this set you on your path. Talk about this. <laughs> it, it did. So in 2009, it was the first annual chess fest in Tucson, Arizona, um, led by Gene Hoffman. And Jennifer Shahade was the featured guest at the event, and it was a marvelous event uh, where there was a human chess game. And I can't remember, I think Jen might have done a simul, or maybe she played the human chess game. We've had uh, many events since. Um, but there was a component, there was, I think, a blitz tournament or a quick chess tournament, and, and my daughter had just started playing. And there were only a few female players in the event, but she happened to come out on top, the top female player, and she won a prize called Chess on the Fly. One of the board members at the time was the owner of a ranch called Cimarroncita in New Mexico near Taos, and it was supposed to be a trip with uh, Gene Hoffman and possibly another board member, 
and uh, to go to this ranch and play chess at this ranch. And there was going to possibly be an event there. And it turned out it was just our family who went with Gene Hoffman. And it was, it was a really special chess weekend. And that is what really got the entire family hooked. My son had begun playing that January prior to that year. And we just kind of got hooked. And I've, be, I've remained a volunteer and an organizer and a participant and a tournament director in Nine Queens events since then. And uh, you know, considering Nine Queens definitely has a uh, women's chess focus, uh, you know, we've mentioned a few times now about you being an NTD. Am I correct in that you're one of only seven women to have ever been an NTD? I think that's the number. I think Merritt Thorpe, my good friend, um, confirmed that number for me when it happened. It wasn't too long ago. Um, I'm absolutely honored to be in the crowd of other amazing women. And I know there are many women out there that I encourage to take the same route because I do believe more women in leadership roles does have an impact uh, in tournaments. And your very first chess volunteer role was as a scorekeeper? Is Well, it, it was at a, as a scorekeeper as well as working at the Nine Queens events. And, the, and so it might have been setting up boards at an event here and there. But I was very interested. We, we became involved in the scholastic um, movement in Southern Arizona for Southern Arizona Chess Association. And Enrique Huerta and Karen Pennock at the time were very um, – supportive of me being involved in a voluntary role and that's how it all started and then I got my turn my club tournament director and just started being involved at a higher level because I don't know if you have kids that play chess but it's kind of boring or anxiety producing as a parent of chess players to wait and find out if they're going to win or lose or draw and it's a lot uh more fruitful for me to be involved in the event and not watch their game or wait for them. A lot of people who have gotten involved in U.S. chess governance uh, got their start because they were bored chess parents <laughs> waiting for results. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know our president, Alan Priest, talks about this a lot. Uh, well, and it was also a way for me to be involved in an activity that they were falling in love with and becoming passionate about. And it also supported our ability to participate in events around the country. And it also, your, your um, the volunteer work grew uh, in that I've noted in a lot of the work you've done that mentoring has been very important to you. Uh, you you told me that you've mentored six young adults uh, under the age of 20 in, in various leadership roles. Um, at the Arizona State Scholastic, uh, you were mentoring women in a variety of chess leadership roles, such as organizer, teacher, camp counselor, and TD. Mentoring sounds easy, but I suspect it's trickier than just showing someone the ropes. What, what has you found has been the most difficult aspect of mentoring somebody? Um, well, I, I think one of my mentors, Glenn Panner, who is a, is a great friend and a great mentor to me, um, would allow me to make a decision, right or wrong, and then support me after, but not ever second-guess my decision while it was being made. So that was a great tool that I've learned in training uh, people to be involved. And our, our young tournament directors in Tucson, Arizona, my own children, Aya and Zach, and then um, the vice president, the current vice president's son, Jonathan, and several other high school students that are part of Robbie Adamson's Catalina Foothills High School team have been interested in being involved. 
Um, and now that uh, I'm prim the primary tournament director at the free tournaments at the library, we have some other players who aren't in some of the uh, regular chess programs also wanting to learn more about tournament direction there are, or, tournament or, or chess instruction. So we've given opportunities to players as young as 13, not, not necessarily players, but participants as young as 13, all the way to 20 to be junior board members and learn some of the skills needed to get to wherever they want to go. And right now we have two young tournament directors who are ready to take their senior tournament director test. And we're hopeful that by the time they get to college, they might even get to a higher level. And they're both very, and actually several are very interested in becoming on board, um, coming on board for national tournament direction as well. Would you consider those your greatest mentoring success Oh uh, yeah, and there's another great success story. I've I've, I've worked with a uh, the Susan Polgar Invitational for years, and one of the chess players there, uh, her name is Willow, and she's from New Mexico. is an absolutely fabulous tournament director. She's a senior in high school. She may have just graduated, and has now making chess a big. Uh, part of her career and her life. And she's not really interested in becoming a much stronger chess player. At least that's what she told me last time. Um, she's a strong chess player, but not really interested in that, but is very interested in organizing events and has started a club in New Mexico. So that's a great success story as well as our local Southern Arizona stories. Mm -hmm. And so New York City just recently had their charity chess event that's become a very big deal was they're raising money for um, cancer research. But you have your own Chess for Charity event uh, that started in 2014 where you're soliciting donations to the Kiva Foundation. Well, actually, that is a separate organization called Chess Helps, but they have – this organization has uh, used – I have worked with Chess Helps in the direction and organization of the event since its inception in 2014. But it's an, it's an organization that originated in Chant and Chandler and they have partnered with us and asked us um, to be involved. Myself and Michelle Martinez and Jonathan Martinez have been a part of this since 2014. And why we're so supportive of it is they're um, establishing a, a donation uh, opportunities for the Kiva Foundation, which is an international nonprofit that's a micro-lending um, organization for underserved communities. We, we try to give people ideas and uh, methods and how to get things off the ground themselves. Uh, is it difficult to, to get an event like this started? What, what would you say are some key initial steps? Well, I, I mean, honestly, I've heard this yesterday in our meeting. Just start. And in fact, that was the advice that was given to me when I was interested in doing more than scorekeeping. Someone said to me, a fellow board member, Satisha Rajula, said, just do it. Just open up the rule book, read it, become a club TD, and you can do it. So I think about that mantra. So with regard to creating a, a charitable event, just run one. And you might need a tournament director, and you can find there's resources on the U.S. chess site in your state, but find someone who you, th you think would be on board with this. And people would love to vol volunteer their time to um, contribute to an event like this. And the fact that this has been going on for six years is amazing. 
And I don't know the amount of money, but I think it's well over uh, $40,000 that they've contributed to this organization over the last six years. No, that, that's impressive. And, and on I that hope my number's not wrong. <laughs> okay. On that same point about fundraising, um, uh, grants and funding have been a common topic on this podcast. And at the 2019 Arizona State Scholastic Championship, your organization received the Connie Hillman Foundation Grant and obtained scholarship founding, funding for Title I and BIA schools. Uh, talk about the process of obtaining grants and funding and also what BIA – uh, well, I can tell that. That's the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So talk a bit about the process of obtaining grants and funding for people who may be unfamiliar with that process. Well, first, let me say it's the Connie Hillman Fa Family Foundation, and they're a grant organization that supports initiatives in southern Arizona for, to build um, events for the community or to build community uh, programs. Um, what what we wanted to do is there's a, the, Arizona's a huge state. If you haven't been there um, and you only think of Phoenix and Tucson, uh, it's a huge part in the in the north where there are many Indian reservations and there's some that are central too but it's a long way to travel if the net if the state championship is being held in Tucson it's a could be an eight-hour drive and it's expensive to come down and stay in a hotel so we we wanted to figure out a way we the Southern Arizona Chess Association board wanted to figure out a way to come up with some funding to offset some costs for to to have as many players as possible from the Indian reservations. So one of our board members, Robbie Adamson, is connected with the Connie Hillman Family Foundation. And we wrote a proposal, and they had a board meeting, and it was approved. So it, 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 it does pay in these situations to know someone who might know the organization where it might they may be able to fund what your initiative is. Um, but the, the, it was born out of an idea. How can we how can we support more players from Northern Arizona from low income schools to come to the state championship? And we brainstormed and this came up and it was pretty remarkable that we got the funding. It cut their uh, registration fees to a th almost or their cost to less than half of what any, what, what uh, other players played to be in the event. And, um, I think we had over 75 players at our event and I'm in process of writing an article about it because we want to suppose we want to share that model with other state organizations so that it keeps it continues in future state championships well we have been off we, a, a lot here there's a lot to chew on I'm gonna kind of go with a palate cleanser here uh, this is our 80th anniversary year at U.S. Chess. And so I've been asking all my guests um, on the podcast this year, and I'm going to ask you, what has U.S. Chess meant to you? Oh, I'm going to cry now. I, I, you know, it's meant a lot to me to – this is the best example I, I have become – that I can share with you. I have become great friends over the years with the – Kim Kramer, the marvelous Kim Kramer. And over a drink last night between Michelle, Kim, and I, we were just talking about my very first U.S. chess tournament was Super, Nas Super Nationals. And it, my kid, I think it was, it must have been 2009. I don't know what, I don't know the year. 2009. 2009. Was a, was a year, yes. 
I was in Nashville and there was tornado warnings. We had to go in the basement. So we have memories as a family. My husband and my two kids went. They played in under sections, but we couldn't believe, I couldn't believe the magnitude of this event. And it was infectious, especially after our beginning involvement with the Nine Queens Chess Fest that had happened earlier that year. I mean, all all that was happening um, in our lives related to chess and our children's success, winning chess on the fly, and my son became the K-1 uh, co-champion that year. And it was just, you know, you get enticed by those trophies. But U.S. chess in particular, there was a volunteer program. And I thought, again, I don't want to sit around and wait for thumbs up, thumbs down. So I got involved and I had the great privilege, and I I don't mean that lightly, of posting results in the Skittles room. I loved it. And that was with Tom Nelson and TC. I love her. And uh, that, and, and in between rounds, my kids helped. So they got hooked at the whole process. And what we were talking about last night, Kim and Michelle and I, was that I was a parent. I was a client. I was a customer. And now I feel it's a very, it's an, it's very intriguing and also a great honor and a privilege. I'm on the other side of the table now. I provide that service. I'm a tournament director. I have sometimes served at chess control in various capacities. So U.S. chess really, it, it has allowed me to grow and develop in the chess community to gain a certain level of expertise and practical skills. So I, I, I'm indebted to U.S. Chess, and I love the organization, and I hope to be involved with it for, the real, honestly, the rest of my life. I love it. That's a very heartfelt answer. I uh, mean it. And so thank you. I, that was I, – I should ask you, you mentioned someone's initials. We should get their full name. You said T.C. Th- that's her name. Oh, that I, is. I mean, those are initials for something, but yeah. we do call her TC. Okay. And I, I, I think she's from Michigan, but she's mo- the most lovely person, and she's a tournament director now. And I actually remember when we were working to- together, we, she was a tournament director here in, um, uh, not here, but in Nashville, at, at National Elementary this year. And I was so happy to see that that's, I love to see the growth and development and skill acquisition that is happening for a lot of us. And they're not just bored parents. Some of us, some people are actually uh, accomplished chess players or educators and, uh, or hold other capacities, but it's great. It's been, that's the other thing, U.S. chess, friends. Over the years, friends that I've, they've made and that I see from place to place you know, in tournaments all around the country. It's been fabulous. So I, I do feel indebted to U.S. Chess for um, their support. Well, I'm disappointed, though, because I di- didn't get the tears you said you were going to give us. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm welling up. Okay. Well, Martha, <laughs> thank you so much for all that you do for U.S. Chess as a volunteer and as a tournament director and for everything you're doing for your state association in Arizona. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to One Move at a Time. Our theme music was composed by Alex King, a national master who lives in Memphis, Tennessee. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit with an educational mission. You can find more information about us at uschess.org, where you can become a member by clicking on the Join button, and you can donate to our cause by clicking on the Donate button. I hope that you have learned something new about how to build chess within your community. 
join us next month for another Chess World personality and more good ideas.